Over the course of the last several months, as we've all been dealing with the tensions in our world and with the coronavirus pandemic, we probably haven't realized some of the places in our lives where we've been grieving. Often we think of grief in just the terms of death, but grief happens in a number of other ways and other kinds of loss. In my discussions with some counselors, they shared some thoughts on how we can process grief, even grief in such a time as this. We experience grief on so many different levels. You know, when you start thinking about the stages you go through when you grieve, you don't have to lose somebody that you love, uh, have a death to grieve. Again, take the pandemic. I'm grieving my loss of freedom to be able to be uh, in worship with 3,000 people and to be able to hug them and, and to hold their hand when I pray with them or go to the hospital, that's genuine grief. So many times in life we are rushing through our feelings because it's hard to tolerate bad feelings, but sometimes we just have to learn to kind of sit with them a little bit and feel them. Grief is one of those things that on occasion is hidden behind, underneath some other emotional experience. Grief, it's, it's kind of an attachment idea that when we lose something that matters to us, that we value, that we'll mourn and feel loss sort of as a function. From birth to death, I mean, life is full of losses. It just is. It's full of losses. It's full of beginnings and endings. Being allowed to be sad and allowed to grieve is really important. Grieving can take on so many different views and pictures. There's some things that we can be even dismissive about within ourselves, like, oh, that's not worthy of grieving. There is a grieving that can occur if a great vacation plan gets canceled. No, that's not the end of the world from a technical standpoint, but I had looked forward to that for a whole year. I'd saved up money for that, and now it didn't happen. There's a grieving process that is going on inside of me, and I need to help that come out so that it potentially doesn't get infected. Face the reality and explore the dimensions of what you lost that triggered the grief. It's a little bit like fear when we were talking about fear before, about moving into the loss and letting people be in there with you, kind of that whole community idea. One of the best things to say to somebody when you're dealing with their grief, when they come to you and they're just, you know, depressed or angry or wondering what's gonna happen next and they're dealing with grief, is to ask their story. Tell me about your story. And we just need to have an awareness of ourselves so that we can now choose to participate in that grieving process and healing process within ourselves. Some people say, oh, you'll get over it. And, uh, and we will work our way through grief, but we don't get over the loss of something completely because we learn from it. That's one of the things I most value about the Calvary community is when I've been through losses or my wife's been through losses, we have this community around us, including pastors, the number of pastors that reached out to us in various experiences and our small group that we're kind of living life with. Blessed are those who mourn. Even Jesus' most famous sermon of his whole earthly ministry was an acknowledgement that it's blessed to experience loss and then to mourn. Good evening, church. How are we doing? Right on. Hey, if you have, cool. uh, hey, if you have a Bible with you, go to John chapter 11. That's where we'll be tonight, John chapter 11. I'm going to say this for the third week in a row, and then I'm probably not going to say it again, uh, but our pattern going forward is going to be uh, as we hit this sermon part of the evening, uh, you are free to take off your mask if you want to. Uh, if you want to leave that on, by all means do so. Once we are done with the sermon part of the evening, we are going to ask as we go back into worship at the end that you would slide that mask back up. Uh, that is just the pattern we're trying to set right now. And so again, uh, I'm probably not going to say this every single week, so if people ask or if there's people who haven't been before, that's going to be our pattern going forward. We invite you into that. Um, once more, uh, we, we, we find ourselves talking about a subject, and, and I'll say once more and, and, and one more time during this series. 
Uh, as we hit week six through the final week of this series, we're looking at grief and we're looking at loss. And what I want to talk about tonight, I want to reflect on grief and loss, and I want to do so with the seriousness that it deserves. You heard in this video, as we think about grief and loss, really it's not like a binary, like you either feel it or you don't. There are degrees of grief and loss. There are degrees that you feel uh, of loss. That there's like little things that some of you have lost this year. And I think it's important to grieve the little things. Maybe one of the biggest deficits in our culture is we have no capacity to grieve anything unless it's the most serious thing possible. But what I want to point out is this. Some of you graduated high school or graduated college this year, but you didn't get to have a graduation like you always dreamed of or planned because of COVID and everything got messed up and jacked up. And so everything got put away and you had to like sit on Zoom and be like, yay, you know, like you did that. So, so some of you expected to have a freshman year of college or senior year of college. And you had big dreams and expectations for what that was going to look like. And that got robbed from you. He mentioned it in the video. Some of you had a trip planned, a vacation planned, a concert you were going to go to, a thing with your friends, a, a wedding you were going to be a part of. And that got robbed from you this year. And see, one of the worst things that we can do is pretend that you're only allowed to grieve if it's the most serious thing in the world. And so sometimes we pay, play the pain Olympics, where if I don't have the biggest pain in the world, I'm not allowed to actually grieve a loss that I've experienced. But, but tonight, I just want to free someone here to grieve even the small things, the little things. I, I want to invite you to grieve the small things that aren't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things, but they've been robbed from you for no fault of your own. And, and then I want to invite you tonight to grieve the big things, to actually work through your process of grief that maybe some of you lost a job this year. Maybe some of you actually didn't get to go back to college that you wanted to go to. Some of you lost an opportunity. Some of you lost something you held dear in this life. And that I think I can just speak for many of you here. Someone lost someone you treasure this year. A friend, a family member, someone who is so near and dear to your heart and you lost them this year. And I want you to know tonight, my, my intention is not to talk you out of your grief. My intention tonight is not to tell you that it's all good. Don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. Everyone hurts, so don't worry about it. That's not my intention tonight. My intention is to take your grief incredibly serious. Whether it's a small thing or a big thing, my intention tonight is to take your grief seriously. And at the same time, my job is to do something else. That at the same time that I am taking your grief seriously, I want to take another reality seriously. And that is the reality of the gospel, the reality of God's promises to us. And tonight, if you are grieving, I want you to hold tight to your grief. I don't want you to pretend it's not there. I don't want you to bury it. I don't want you to put it out of mind and say, if I'm really tough or strong or love God, I won't grieve. We just sang this song about being so in love with God. Being so in love with God does not mean you pretending anything. Pretending is never the Christian thing to do. Being in love with God is holding your grief and holding the promises of the gospel together. And today as we jump into John chapter 11, I want to show you how those two things intersect. I want to show you how the promises of God and the gospel and your grief intersect. Again, the goal here is not to cast your grief away as if it doesn't exist. It's to look at it fully in the face. And if you haven't grieved this year, if you don't feel like you've grieved in your life, there's only one reason for that. Because you haven't lived long enough. Like if you live long enough, you're going to bleed. If you live long enough, you're going to grieve. If you live long enough, you're going to weep and mourn and be completely broken over something in this world. It's a reality. You do not get to go through this life and not bleed. And so if tonight you're bleeding, if tonight you're grieving, if tonight you've lost something this year, I want to point you at the reality of the gospel we see in this story and try to encourage our hearts. So again, John chapter 11. Verse 1, if you have it on your Bible, I want you reading it, uh, including those of you watching online with us right now. Uh, if you don't have the Bible with you, we'll have it up here on the screens. It begins this way. It says in verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. So it begins with the story of a man named Lazarus, and he's sick. And the name Lazarus is kind of this fascinating name for the story we're about to read. And some of you grew up in church, so you kind of know where the story's going. And some of you didn't, and this is a remarkable story for you to hear for the first time tonight. But Lazarus is really the, the word Eleazar. And Eleazar is the word that God helps. The word El, anytime you see that in the Bible, is the word for God. And Azer is this idea of a helper. This is actually how, if you just kind of want some interesting Hebrew insight here, Eleazar, El and Azer. Azer is the word used in Hebrew in Genesis chapter 2 when Eve is created as the helper to Adam. 
So ultimately, the same word that's describing God is describing the woman in Genesis 3. I think it's this fascinating and beautiful word that there is a help, there is a rescue, there is a redemption. Uh, And again, that's just this interesting little fact that has nothing to do with the sermon. But um, that is Lazarus, and he's sick. And it says he was from Bethany, the village where Mary and, and of his Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So this begins with a man who's sick and the, the sisters do the natural thing that we should be doing when we're sick or when someone we love is sick. When someone gets cancer, when someone gets COVID, when someone gets sick, when someone is aching, when someone is waiting for a test back, what do they do immediately? They learn of the sickness and they go straight to Jesus. They learn of the sickness and they cry out to Jesus immediately, Lord, the one you love is sick. What a beautiful thing. Isn't it cool they didn't say Lazarus is sick? They're like, Lord, the one you love, he's sick. Isn't that a great way to pray for people? Not just to pray, Lord, help my mom, or Lord, help my sister, or Lord, help my best friend. Lord, help her because you love her. Lord, help him because you're into him. Lord, help that man because you're crazy about him, and you sent your son to die on a cross for him. Lord, the one that you love is sick. What are they doing? They're appealing to the great love of God. They're appealing to the love of God in Christ Jesus. It goes on this way in verse 4. It says, when he had heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son might be glorified through it. And so what I want to point out here with all boldness and courage is that the sickness and what we're about to see, the eventual death of Lazarus is not outside of God's plan, God's control, and God's will. In other words, this isn't Jesus saying, what a bummer, I didn't know that was happening. Jesus is saying here, I know exactly what's happening, and this sickness doesn't end with him dead. This sickness doesn't end with death. We'll see how that plays out. But Jesus says this sickness is so that God's glory might be displayed through God's son. Like, listen to me. If you are going to follow Jesus in this crazy world we're living in, you need to have a robust theology of suffering. You will not make it in this world if your theology of suffering is, well, sometimes people suffer and God doesn't care. Or sometimes people suffering, well, I guess God will put up with it, but I don't really know why. If you don't have a robust understanding that God is working right in the midst of suffering, if you have not forced your face into the scripture to understand that the people of God suffer and that God is going to use that for his glory, you're going to struggle in this world. You're going to struggle in this life. And worse yet, if some of you have bought into the absolute pagan idea from the pit of hell that if you just trust God enough, you'll never suffer, you've got another thing coming. You really do. I want to plead with some of you to have a robust theology of suffering, to think about suffering and where God is in the midst of that. Because the idea isn't that God's just kind of unaware of it. He's right in the midst of it. And he's working it for our good and for his glory. It goes on this way in verse five. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's like John is writing this gospel and the Holy Spirit is guiding his hand as he's writing. And he wants to remind us that Lazarus is about to die, but it's not because Jesus doesn't love him. They're about to lose their brother, but it's not because Jesus doesn't love him. Like to be a Christian is to hold these true things together. There is a sickness in my family Someone is ill, someone is hurting, there's something going on and God loves me and God loves them like crazy. It's to be able to hold those two things together without choosing one or the other. I think sometimes we're tempted to think if someone gets sick, it's because God's punishing them. If someone gets sick, it's because they've done something wrong. If someone gets sick, it's because God doesn't love me anymore. But read these two verses side by side. Lazarus is sick, he is about to die And the big thing that's emphasized is that Jesus loves them. Again, if your view of God's love cannot hold in tension, hold at the same time, both suffering and God's ever-present love for us, you've got some work to do with the scriptures. Again, I just want to plead with you to be the type of person who doesn't have a naive view of God, that if you just love God, you'll never suffer. Or if God loved us, he'll never let us suffer. These two things work in unison. It goes on in verse six. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there for two more days. 
Isn't this a confounding part of the story? He's like, I heard someone was sick in that town over there. And Jesus goes, okay. Like he's going to die, Jesus. He goes, okay, let's hang out here till Tuesday. Right? Like that's what Jesus does. And, and if you're just reading the story, again, if you don't know anywhere where this story is going, you're like, whoa, 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 this is Jesus, right? And what's he been doing this whole gospel? Healing sick people. Why has he been healing sick people? So they don't die. What's he doing here? He's waiting two days and not healing the sick person. This is a confounding part of the story. And if you're honest with yourself, it's a confounding part of your story too. Because doesn't it feel like sometimes you're sick or you're hurting or you're aching and God could solve it in a moment, but he's not? This is what they're experiencing here. Like for some reason in God's sovereignty, Jesus decides I'm gonna stay here two more days. Not two more minutes, two more hours, two more days. Lazarus is suffering. Lazarus is dying. Lazarus is about to be dead. And it looks like Jesus doesn't care. And I want to invite someone here tonight who has gotten into their mind that God doesn't care about your problem. Maybe there's some of you listening online. Maybe you listen to this months from now and you've actually kind of bailed on God because it doesn't seem like he cares about your problem. I want you to know tonight that God cares deeply about Mary and Martha and Lazarus and all of them and yet he's going to wait two days. And here's what I need us to remember. That just because God's not moving on your timeline doesn't mean God ain't moving. Doesn't mean God isn't up to something. Doesn't mean God isn't working something for your good and his glory in this world. He stays two more days. And in verse seven, it says, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. So in other words, two, two days later, <laughs> let's go. He says, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and you're going back? So in other words, Lazarus lives in this territory where Jesus knows if I go there, I might get arrested, I might get killed, I might get harmed. People do not like Jesus at this time. And the disciples are like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't want to go over to Lazarus. That could cause us some pain here. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who stumbles in the daytime will not stumble for they see this world's, by this world's light. It is when a person walks by night that they stumble for they have no light. He's laying out this, this, this idea in the ancient world that there's 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. And functionally, what he's trying to say is there's only 12 hours of daylight in this. I've got to go there. There's no more time to waste. So isn't this an interesting thing about Jesus? He's like, there's so, only so much daylight and we've got to go right now. But he just waited two days. And, and there's this wild thing about God where sometimes he'll wait and he'll wait and then he'll wait and then in a moment he'll step in. And I think for some of us, we get so frustrated with the waiting and waiting and waiting that we forget in a moment, God could change your whole circumstance. God could change a sickness. God could change a life. God could change a family in a moment. It goes on this way in verse 11. It says, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Isn't this a beautiful thing that Jesus does in our life? He finds us asleep and he says, wake up, wake up, child. Wake up to the reality of this world. Wake up to the reality of suffering. Wake up to the reality of sin. Wake up to the reality of God. God is in the business of waking us up to the reality of this world, to the very real suffering. You know what some of us have woken up to this year? The reality of suffering of people all around the world. You know, disease isn't new, right? Disease disrupting society isn't new. And some of us have lived in this fantasy world in the West where nothing's ever going to touch us. And this year it touched us. And we woke up to the very real suffering of the world. For, for some of us, this year was a year where we woke up to the very real suffering of brothers and sisters here in this country who suffer because of the color of their skin. We woke up to the reality that the church actually has a mission and people are dying. And without Jesus, they spend eternity apart from Christ. Wake up. He says, my brother Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And I wonder if tonight God's brought someone here to wake you up, to give you a sense of his goodness and his grandeur and his glory, even in the midst of the suffering. He wants to wake you up. It goes on this way in verse 12, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. <laughs> Jesus has been speaking about his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. One of the most classic things you'll read about the disciples in the Bible is, is that they never get uh, something, and that something is called the point. That, that they never get it. That, that they're always missing it. 
that they're always just like slightly off. Jesus is like, um, I have the bread of life that I offer you. And they're like, we are so hungry, so I'm in, right? Like they just miss it all the time. And they're like close, but not quite. And here Jesus is like, he's asleep, but I'm gonna wake him up. And they're like, actually, it's pretty good for him to sleep. It'll help, help him recoup. But here's what I love about my Jesus. You know what he does with these disciples who never get the point? who always stumble, who never quite get it, who are always just this far off. He loves them anyway. He's with them. He's in with them. Can I speak to the person right now who feels like you're always doing Christianity wrong? You never quite read your Bible enough and your prayer life is like, eh, at best. Like, can I speak to the person tonight who never feels like you're good enough, never feels like you measure up? You always feel like you're a little less than what Jesus wants for you. The crazy good news of the gospel is he loves you anyway. He wants you. Mess ups and failures just like you. And just like me, like he sees his disciples fail over and over again. And one of the greatest attributes of our God is his unbelievable patience for you. His unbelievable patience. Like God is long suffering with human beings like you and me who get him wrong over and over and over again, who fail to pray, who fail to trust, who fail to be generous, who fail to walk in holiness. And he's just patient with us anyway. It goes on this way. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I think this is actually an important part of the story. Jesus has the courage to look at his disciples and say, Lazarus is dead. And here's why this matters. Um, Lazarus' death isn't a metaphor. It's not an idea. It's not a nice thing. It is a reality that every human being will experience. And again, in, in the Western world, especially in the Western world, for those of us who are young and those of us who are healthy, we have this fantasy where we don't think about death ever. But I need you to understand that for most of human history, most human beings have lived just on the edge of death. Like most human beings have understood, I could die tomorrow. We understand that conceptually. They understood that in reality. And so what we've done in this kind of culture we've built, and praise the Lord, we have what we have. We have food, we have medicine, we have capacity to live longer. But it's pushed death out of our minds to the place where we're not even comfortable talking about it. We're not even comfortable looking it in the face. And so someone dies and we say, well, they passed away or or they went on. We're uncomfortable saying that they're dead. They're dead. Like I've been at funerals. And again, I'm not trying to knock anything anyone says at a funeral. When you're grieving, whatever you need to say, you say. But sometimes the impulse, the inclination is to be like, that person's not really dead. They're with us in our hearts. They're, They're not really dead. They're kind of everywhere. That there's this poem that says, do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not here. I did not die. And listen, again, I'm not knocking that. It was read at a family's funeral that I was at in the last couple of years. But here's the truth. That's not reality. Reality is that they did die. Like, I need you to understand something tonight. The great Christian hope isn't that you don't die. It's that death isn't the end of the story. Like, like the great Christian hope isn't that you die and your spirit kind of lives on, but you didn't really die. Or, or you're kind of present and when I see a sunrise, I'm aware you're there. Listen, those can be sweet, beautiful ideas, But the reality of Christian faith looks the facts in the face. And the fact of Lazarus' situation isn't that he was kind of dead or that he was dead, but he lived on in their hearts. It's that he died. And Jesus has the courage to say this. Jesus has the courage to look death square in the face. And I think perhaps for so many of us, we have this fear of even talking about death. We have a fear of talking about our own deaths. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to talk about it. We put it out of our mind. We don't even want to think about death, but it's a reality in this world. And here's how the gospel confronts that reality. Verse 15, it says, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you might believe, but now let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let's also go that we might die with him. So they're still not getting the point here. But verse 17, it goes, Jesus on his arrival found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them for the loss of their brother. And I want to tap the brakes right here on the story. Jesus and his disciples are heading toward Lazarus's family. Um, All these other people are heading there. And I actually want to kind of just shift gears for just a second. I've been trying to speak to you tonight if you've been grieving, if you've been walking through loss, if you've been walking through tears and pain. But but the the, the gear, I want to shift here is I want to speak to you if someone in your life has been. Um, If someone loses someone they love, if someone loses a job, if someone loses something, even if you think that thing is small, um, what's being modeled here for us is the most, the single most important thing you will do for that person. 
Listen to me, the single most important thing you will do for someone who has lost something is show up. It's show up. It's be there. It's be present. You don't have to have the perfect words. You don't have to send the perfect flowers. You don't have to say some comforting thing. You don't have to say something that sounds spiritual or religious or profound. When someone loses something, and especially when that loss is the deepest loss we experience of the life of someone we love, um, your words are almost irrelevant compared to your presence, that you would show up, that you would be there, that you might even ask questions. Tell me the story. Tell me about that person. Tell me about why you love them, and that you would just shut up and listen. It's like a sit down and shut up approach where you just show up. Because sometimes we walk into grieving situations and we feel like we have to have something profound to say. Someone loses their job and you go, you know what, this is an opportunity. You know what, it might be. But this isn't the moment to say that. So someone loses like an opportunity to graduate and you go, you know, you didn't get to graduate, but at least you got a degree. They're like, great, cool, thanks, right? Or, Or listen to me, if someone loses someone they love and you go, well, I guess God just needed them in heaven. Never say that. Like never say that. Never say that. Never say, well, they're an angel now, or or even, I mean, listen, they're in a better place. I absolutely actually believe they're in a better place. It's probably not the time to say that. It's the time to sit and to listen and to grieve and to be with. You know, the best thing you might do for someone suffering is sit alone in their living room in silence for an hour with them so that they don't have to be alone. That's what happens here in the story. There's all these people flooding to Mary and to Martha, and they're just being with them. Verse 20 goes on. It says, Martha heard that Jesus was coming and she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But now I know even if you ask God, whatever you will, he will give you whatever you ask. So don't miss the raw emotion here. Her brother just died and she goes to Jesus. And I don't think she said, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. I think it was, Lord, if you had been here, he would be alive and not dead. Do you sense the accusation in her voice? Do you sense this thing in her voice that says, if you had come sooner, if you hadn't waited two days, he would be alive still. And I think this raw kind of gut emotion that's shown in Martha right now is something some of us need to be free to feel when we lose something. Again, there are so many Christians who have been convinced that if you love God, you got to talk to him in this flowery language where everything kind of rhymes and sounds nice rather than just saying, God, why'd you let that happen? You robbed that from me. I'm angry at you. Like, listen, God can handle your anger. He can handle your grief. He can handle your rage. Listen to me. He can handle your accusation, even if it's not true. I think some of us are so afraid to tell God what we really feel, forgetting that God knows exactly what we feel. And to say it out loud, even an accusation, even an anger, even just a vent before the Lord might be the healthiest thing you can do. Like if you go read the book of Psalms, um, we, we all think of the book of Psalms, we really just see it through the prism of Psalm 23, right? Where it's like, even though I walk through the valley and you're with me all the time, you're my shepherd, right? And we think like all the Psalms are like that. But like most of the Psalms aren't like that. Go read the Psalms. The Psalms are like, God, how long are you gonna let this happen? You're just gonna let this go on forever, God? injustice and anger and rage and heartache and cancer and all these things, you're just going to let this go on forever? I'm mad at you, God. That's the kind of prayer life that I want to call some of you toward. Like perhaps the reason for some of you that your prayer life is so lackluster is that you've never actually been honest in your prayer life. You've never actually told God how you feel. You've never actually vented. You've never actually yelled at God. I dare you to go yell at God. I dare you to be angry. I dare you to let that out because God knows already And you might just experience healing through encountering God through your raw emotions. Again, not through pretending everything's okay. There's never been anyone who's been healed by pretending. You've never gotten better by pretending that something's okay when it isn't. So Jesus goes on from this accusation and says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In other words, she's quoting Jewish theology. And here's Jewish theology. Jewish theology is that everyone who dies is dead. They're not sort of alive. They're not kind of alive. They're dead. But there will come a day, the great day of judgment. It's described in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. There will come a day where God judges the heavens and the earth and everyone who is faithful to God will be raised up to the newness of life. This was every Jewish person believed this. 
that this was the case. And not every Jewish person. Actually, there were, there were a sect of people called the Sadducees who did not believe this. But, but the, the primary belief in Jewish thinking was that on that last day, everyone's going to be raised. And so you know what Martha's saying? Great. Cool. He died. And just like everyone else, he'll be raised. Real comfort to me, Jesus. Like she's still angry at him because Jesus is saying, your brother will rise again. She goes, I get it. Everyone's going to rise again on the last day. And Jesus says, no, no. Verse 25, he says, I said to her, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And everyone who lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who just come into the world. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. Believe in me, you'll never die. And again, it's not that you'll never be dead. It's that it's just not permanent. It's that's not your permanent state. That's not how this thing ends. The story doesn't end in death, doesn't end in destruction, doesn't end in pain, doesn't end in cancer, doesn't end in car wrecks, doesn't end in any of this. It ends in life. If you believe this, and Jesus says, do you believe this? She says, yes, I believe that you are the Messiah with the Christ, the son of God who has come into this world. If I can speak to someone tonight who's maybe been attending here, maybe you've been listening online, maybe you're not even sure what you make of Jesus tonight. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Jesus Christ is your access to eternal life. That this life, it comes and goes in a moment. But there's an eternity beyond that. And you get to decide whether or not you receive that. You get to decide whether or not that's yours. To the person who's here tonight who isn't sure God wants them, who isn't sure what to do with that, I want you to know the offer is extended to you. Not from me, but from God himself who says, if you would trust and believe, if you would call out to God, if you would cry out to him to rescue you from your sin, he would give you this resurrection life where you can confidently say that it's not that someday I'll live in eternity. It's that my eternity starts now, right now. My eternity has begun. Listen, I believe that someday I will die. If Jesus doesn't come back in my lifetime, I will die. And whoever's around will bury me in the ground. They will grieve over me and my bones and my flesh will rot in the ground. But that is not the end of the story. Like my great hope, the great hope of the Christian faith isn't if you just are strong enough, God will keep you alive until you're like 90 and then you can die in your sleep. What a lousy hope that would be. What a lousy hope it would be that it's just like, if you're faithful enough, you get to live nine decades instead of nine billion years from now. That's the hope of the Christian faith. He says, do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord. She receives his salvation. It goes on in 28. It says, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here for you and he's asking for you. So in other words, she goes back into Mary, goes back to find Mary and says, Jesus is actually asking for you, Mary which is this wild thing. Again, if I can just kind of talk about a little context here, Jesus was a first century rabbi, a teacher. And first century rabbis did one thing. They taught men. They did not teach women. First century rabbis did not teach women. They did not bother with women. They didn't want to be around women. They didn't care about women. And what's Jesus doing? Bring Mary out because I need to instruct her too. Listen, from time to time, people tell me that the Bible is sexist that the Bible doesn't value women, that Jesus didn't value women. And I just have no idea where that comes from. Like, like Jesus absolutely valued women. This was scandalous that he was willing to value women in a culture that thought of them as second-class citizens. Jesus going, they aren't second-class citizens in my kingdom. They're first-class citizens. They're right in the midst of things. Jesus loved women, cared for women, valued women, lifted up women. This entire story is Jesus interfacing with women in the midst of their hardest moment of their possible existence. This is Jesus loving women. Don't let anyone ever tell you the Bible doesn't value women. Don't let everyone pull a verse out of context and be like, see, the Bible hates women. Read about Jesus. Think about how he acted. See the way he treats Mary and Martha here with compassion and love and kindness and dignity and respect. It goes on this way in verse 30. It says, now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with him in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, he saw him and fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Do you see the same thing happening again? Martha just vented her emotion and Mary's doing the same. Venting your emotion to God is a good, healthy, righteous practice. She does the exact same thing as Martha. It goes on, Jesus saw her weeping 
And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping and was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Isn't this a beautiful thought? That they are aching and in pain and Jesus is aching and in pain with them? That they are aching and in pain and Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit? He's troubled. What's Jesus troubled at? He's troubled at the pain they're experiencing. He's troubled at the reality of death in this world. He's troubled at the death of Lazarus. He's troubled at the state of the world. Have you ever felt like, does God care about me? I read this story and see these random two women that Jesus is aching over. He cares. He sees the pain you're feeling, the pain you're experiencing, the thing you haven't even had the courage to speak out loud yet. God sees your pain and he cares. He's deeply moved and troubled in spirit and said, where have you laid him? He asked, come and see, Lord, they replied. And it says in verse 35, Jesus wept. He's moved to the point of tears. You know, this is the, the shortest verse in, in the entire New Testament. In, in the English, in, in the Greek, there's this random little verse that got weird. And it doesn't matter because verse numbers were added later. So that's technical stuff. But, but my point here is, is, is if you want to go memorize a Bible verse tonight, here's a verse for you. Jesus wept. Like Jesus was moved to tears. Jesus was moved to tears for the situation. He was moved to tears for what was about to happen. He was moved to tears at the state of death and pain and cancer and sickness and COVID-19 in this world. Jesus sees it. And he's moved to tears. And I have to believe that there is a God in heaven who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, that Jesus is there and he sees our world and he's still moved to tears. Isn't that a thought tonight? Like God is in heaven and sees what's happening and he's moved to tears. Goes on this way and says, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Like Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Like there are still people who are skeptical. So in case you thought like the whole Bible was a bunch of like simpleton rubes who who don't really understand the world, they get it, okay? Like, Like the idea that people are dead and they don't rise from the dead is not a modern invention. Like you would have to be unbelievably arrogant to think no one else in human history discovered that people coming back from the dead doesn't happen. They understood it. They got it. There are people right here in this story who are skeptical. Verse 38, it says, Jesus once more deeply moved. He's deeply moved twice. He's cried once. It says he comes to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across its entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said to this, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, there's a, dead, there, there's, there's a bad odor for he's been in there for days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Verse 41, so they moved away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe that you sent me. What's the first thing Jesus does as he approaches the tomb? He prays. Because whatever he's about to do doesn't happen other than the power of God that is working in him, the power that the Father has, the glory that is going up to God in this moment. And verse 43 says this. It says, when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. He says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And this is in contrast to all of the people in the ancient world who thought they had some magical, mystical power. They would mutter under their breath and you wouldn't hear what they're saying. But Jesus isn't muttering anything. He's saying it loud and clear for everyone to hear. He's calling his shot. Can you imagine if Lazarus didn't come out in this moment? Everyone would be like, that was weird. (laughs) Right? That would be weird. Jesus would look like a failure and a fool. But Jesus is no failure and he's no fool. He looks at Lazarus and he speaks with the commanding voice of the authority of the word of God. And he says, you come out of that tomb. And you know what the good news of the gospel is? That someday God will look at me and my dead body laying on the ground and he will go, Brian, come out. He'll say, Jacob, come out. He'll say, Kylie, come out. He'll say, Robbie, come out of that tomb. Tyler, come out of that tomb. Come out of that tomb. He'll look at you. And he will command your dead body to rise. And guess what it'll do? It'll pop right back up. That's the good news. That's the hope of the Christian faith. That just like Lazarus, there will come a day that Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And to the dead, he will cry out their names because he knows your name. And on that day, he'll cry out your name and it'll rise to the newness of life, just like Lazarus is. It says here this, that Lazarus, the dead man, he comes out, his hands and feet are wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Like take him off. He doesn't need him anymore. He's alive now. 
Jesus speaks a word and new life springs into this man who is dead and he wakes up. And that's where we end the story. Kind of. You know the part of the story that's not recorded in the Bible that I always wish was, was Lazarus's second death, right? You ever thought about that? Like Lazarus was in heaven. Lazarus is dead, but his soul has gone to be with the Lord in heaven. And Jesus is like, bring him back, right? And he comes back. And now he's back in this life. But you know what Lazarus has to do a second time is die. Like there's not a dude walking around named Lazarus who's 2,000 years old, right? We're not like, that's, La-. yeah, he, it's weird. You know, like that's not there. Lazarus dies a second time. And that time Jesus doesn't raise him. So it's kind of like, if you want to be a cynic about this story, you can be like, cool magic trick, Jesus. You rose Lazarus from the dead and he died again. Cool. Don't know what difference that made. You know, some people think that about the resurrection of Jesus. Like, cool, Jesus, you can shake off death, but I can't. So what's the deal, Jesus? What's the deal? So see, you look at his story of Lazarus and you go, why just do one guy? Why not do everyone? Why not just like run through the graves and be like, boom, 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 right? Like, why not? Why not do that? Like, here's the question that's more actual real. Question, if Jesus can raise the dead, why didn't he just keep doing it? Like, why didn't he just keep doing this? Like, can we put a fine point on this? If Jesus can raise the dead, why doesn't he do so for our friends who have passed away? Like some of us on Saturday, we'll go, we'll go grieve the life of Noah, right? Like, like if Jesus can raise the dead, why didn't he just do it for Noah? Because he was 19 years old and he doesn't deserve to die at 19. If Jesus can raise the dead, why didn't he do for, so for Noel Sparks? She had no business dying that night at Borderline. If Jesus can raise the dead, why didn't he just do it? Like, what's the deal, God? If you have that power, why not do it? And here's the answer to that question. He will. He will. Like the great storyline of the Bible is that Jesus hasn't raised all the dead yet, but he still will. Like this great promise that the Jews held on to that on that last day, there will be a resurrection is true. Jesus didn't change that. He was just the first fruits of that. Jesus just proved that that's actually going to happen. He was the first resurrected, but all the other resurrections are coming. And that day of resurrection is going to happen. The Bible describes it so clearly. It it describes that day it's coming. So that great day of the Lord we talked about, that day when God comes to judge the living and the dead, we see it so clearly throughout the scripture, but we see it, I think, most clearly. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. You don't need to turn there. It'll be on the screen. It says, I saw in heaven, and heaven was open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. In case you haven't caught it at this point, this is Jesus being described. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Like Jesus' very voice is stronger than a sword. When he speaks, reality changes. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, this name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What we just saw described here is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Like the great Christian hope is that one day Jesus will crack the sky. Every eye will see him. Every tongue will declare him as Lord and he will return to put all things to rights. Like in the New Testament, this is called the blessed hope of the church. Titus 2.13 says we wait for this blessed hope. The appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the blessed hope. So listen, what's the hope for the heavy heart? What's the hope for people like us tonight? It's that one day Jesus is coming back. Ultimately, I want to put it this way. The blessed hope of the church, the blessed hope for you and me tonight is this. Three things. Number one, the return of the king. He's coming back and he's going to rule. He's going to reign and no one will stand against him. It just says he treads the winepress of the fury of God Almighty. Like in other words, no one's going to stand against him. Every enemy is going to fall, including death itself. It's the return of the king. It is the resurrection of the body that your body will literally, physically, eternally be raised. Don't believe in some kind of heaven where your body rots in the ground and you float away to some kind of floaty soul place where you're on a cloud with a harp. That's not the promise of the Bible. The promise of the Bible is that just as Jesus rose physically from the dead, you will too one day. That you will have a physical eternity in heaven. The return of the king, the resurrection of the body, and the restoration of all things. That God's going to put everything to rights. Every wickedness that everyone got away with, they're not going to get away with forever. 
Every injustice that just seems to perpetuate itself forever will be put to stops and will be paid its full price. Everything will be put back together. All of the bad things will be put to rights. Like this is the great blessed hope of the Christian faith. The blessed hope of the Christian faith is that there's coming a day where history itself will end and God will put everything right. And guess what? That's the deepest desire of your soul. Every time you watch the news and you're angry, every time you hear about some injustice that happened to a friend, every time you see something in the world and it bothers you deeply, every time you see part of our beautiful creation that's been marred by the selfishness and sinfulness of men, every time you see that, what you're aching in your heart is for that day when he will restore all things. And that day's coming. And we're told about that in the second to last in the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth like a resurrected heaven, a resurrected earth. For the first heaven, first earth that passed away, there is no longer any sea. The, the sea not being like a literal, there's no oceans. It's like there's, there's no more place where darkness happens. There's no more place where people go out to sea and never come back. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Like if you're not aware of this, almost every metaphor of heaven in the scriptures is a wedding feast. That's what we're gonna spend eternity at. If you're like, I don't know about heaven, sounds boring. You ever been to an awesome wedding? You ever been to a wedding where you're like, I wish that had gone forever, right? You ever been to one of those? It will. We're going to be at a wedding that's going to go on forever. I don't know what that's going to mean. I don't know what it's going to look like, but that's a pretty good metaphor. This is incredible. There's a wedding of a bride and her husband. It says, look, I heard the voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He'll dwell with them. He'll be his people and God himself will be their God. He'll be with them. He'll wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Like, listen, I said this at the very beginning. If you live long enough, you're going to bleed. If you live long enough, you're going to suffer. If you live long enough, you're going to mourn. And if you live long enough, you're going to watch the people you love pass away. And I think it's really possible for us to go, okay, so what's the hope for them? Like, like what's the hope for them who've died? For them who have passed away, what's the hope for me? How do I sit here at a funeral and look at this? How do I sit here at a funeral and process all of this? And, and here's the beautiful answer. We remember this promise that one day Jesus is going to wipe every tear from our eye. Think about how intimate that is. Like sometimes my, my, my daughter cries and I like, I come in and I like wipe away tears. Like tears are the only bodily fluid we feel comfortable like touching, right? Like we'll get in there and right? Like, like this is the weird thing about tears. Like everything else, no, like tears, yes, right? Like we're in on that and, and we wipe that away. Think about how intimate this is. If you think of God as like too distant, doesn't want anything to do with you, God will literally get up in your face and wipe away every tear on that day. See, that's the promise. So what do we do with death? What do we do with the fact that people we love died? What do we do with names like Noah, like Noel, like the people in your life, like my grandmother who died in March? Like, what do we do with all of that in my life? Here's what we recognize. We recognize that they know as present what we only know as promise. Like right now, in this very moment, tears have been wiped from their eyes. They'll never cry again. They'll never mourn again. They'll never weep again. They'll never experience loss and grief again. That's a promise that we have in our future. It is a reality they live in their present. That's what we believe for them. So when we say they're in a better place, it's not just some conceptual better place. It's that they're experiencing this promise right now that God has wiped every tear. They will no longer suffer anymore. And then what about us? Until the promise becomes our present? Like until God's promise becomes our present. Until God wipes away every tear. Here's what we want to do. Number one, we want to acknowledge our pain. We want to acknowledge it. We don't want to pretend. Again, pretending is never the Christian thing. Pretending never leads to healing. We want to acknowledge the depth of our pain. And maybe some of you need to go back through your cycle of grief over again because you started with the presumption that if you felt pain, it meant you didn't have faith. We acknowledge our pain. Listen, we remind ourselves of the promise. We write down Revelation 21.4 somewhere. We write down the words blessed hope. We write down the reality of the resurrection. We remind our souls because it's real easy to forget. And, and then finally, what do we do? We want to prepare for heaven with praise. We want to prepare for heaven with praise because listen, heaven is this reality of eternity, of us at this wedding feast, us before God, no more weeping or crying or pain, but just our hearts worshiping before God for all of eternity. Like if you've ever been in a worship moment and you've just felt yourself utterly raptured and going, I could stay here forever. The good news is one day you will. You will. That'll be your life someday. So we prepare for this moment. We prepare for heaven with praise. Do you know that when we worship in this place, this is one of the closest experiences we'll have to heaven? When you feel that transcendent feeling, it's not just some feeling or emotion you have. This is you connecting in a profound way to your eternal future. 
That's what we do. We cling on to the promise. We know our pain. We remind ourselves of what God said. And we praise in advance, knowing that there's going to be a day we praise with no more tears in our eyes, except for tears of joy. When you walked in tonight, um, each of your seats had um, this little thing sitting right on it. Uh, if you want to grab that and put that in your hand right now. Um, there's just a little token sitting on your seat. Maybe you sat on it without even realizing that. Um, and again, if you came in and, and maybe didn't get one of those, we'll, we'll have little things at the table in the back. Just as you head toward the parking garage there, there's a bunch of these sitting on that table. But um, here's what we wanted to do to close out this series. Our, our band will make their way up right now. So we close out this series. We wanted to remind us um, of this profound truth in Revelation chapter 21.4. Like what's the hope for the heavy heart? The hope for the heavy heart isn't that things are gonna be great. The hope for the heavy heart isn't that things aren't so bad. The hope for the heavy heart is that one day I will die, but Jesus will raise me up and there'll be no more tears anymore. That's the hope for the heavy heart. And here's what I expect. Listen to me. This is not news you wanna hear tonight. I expect that in the next year, there will be more suffering. There'll be more pain. Maybe there'll be more death. There'll be more things we weep over. There'll be more things we cry over. Listen, this community here is not unfamiliar with pain. There will be more of that in the coming year. And what we cling to is a promise. And that promise that I can cling to as I hold this in my hand, as you put this on your keychain, as you slip this in your car, put it on your desk at work, as you do that, you cling to the promise that one day every tear will be wiped from your eye. Every single tear. And what a thing to look forward to. There's gonna come a day we don't cry anymore. There's gonna come a day we don't weep and grieve anymore. That day's coming, but until that day comes, we hold on to the promise and we practice our praise as we head toward heaven. That's what we're gonna do tonight. I wanna invite you as we worship, maybe some of you who are grieving right now over something really profound need to hold this in your hand as a reminder of the promise. Even as you sing and worship, you just hold this thing in your hand and remind yourself, there's gonna come a day every tear is wiped from my eye. But for all of us tonight, I wanna invite us to pray. I wanna invite us to worship. I wanna invite us to echo the praises of heaven in this courtyard tonight. Because there is hope for the heavy heart and it's offered to you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the life of the world to come. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray. Our band's gonna lead us out um, in a special song right now. I'm gonna ask you to stay seated until they ask you to stand. If you're grieving right now, hold this thing in your hand and pray that God would remind you of this promise. If you're not grieving right now, but someone in your life is, hold this thing in your hand and say, I want to be the type of person who communicates this good news to everyone I meet. Let's do that tonight as we come before God. And then when we stand to sing, let's sing like people who actually believe that Jesus Christ is coming again in glory and he's gonna raise us from the dead. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks for your word. Thanks for raising Lazarus. Thanks for raising us. God, I look forward to the day where we don't have to grieve anymore. We don't have to cry anymore. I look forward to the day where we see you face to face, where you dwell with us and that wedding feast goes on for eternity. God, until that day, I pray that you would give us hope. Hope for our heavy hearts. We put this in Christ's name and all God's people agreed and said, amen.